World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The offshore oil industry is about much more than what happens on the rigs. Plenty of work happens beneath them, far beneath them. We meet a deep-sea diver whose work is difficult, dangerous, and entirely dependent on oil prices. And tech companies are now at least talking about dealing with the doctored images, videos, and sounds known as deepfakes, a growing category of disinformation that will become ever more difficult to spot. We ask how they're made and what risks they pose. First up, though. This week, India stripped from the state of Jammu and Kashmir the special status and autonomy it's enjoyed for the past 70 years. This radical reorganization of the country's most troublesome territory risks stoking tensions with Pakistan and in the state itself. There had been a sense afoot for some weeks now that something drastic was going to happen. Alex Trevelli is our India correspondent, reporting from Delhi. And on some level, I feel that people knew that this was the drastic thing that was going to happen, but it was somewhat too shocking to consider. On Sunday night, phone lines and internet access in the valley were cut. Leaders of regional political parties were put under house arrest. And on Monday, the Indian parliament agreed to revoke Jammu and Kashmir's status as a state. It'll be divided into two parts that will be ruled formally from Delhi indefinitely. All of the special status that that state has had since 1950s at least was erased in one stroke of the pen. And so how did Mr. Modi's government justify its decision to do this? Well, a variety of justifications were offered. The ones that we heard most often were that there's been uh, insurgency, violence, unrest, civil strife in the state for so many of the decades since it joined India. This might be a way to knock out those problems once and for all. Another was to say that the state has not been very well developed, that it's absorbed far too much money for too little results benefiting the people of Kashmir. And then I think the most persuasive of the reasons that was given is the one that Mr. Modi's party has always believed in, which is that it's not fair somehow to India as a whole that the people who live in this unusual little bit of it should enjoy different rights. And in the interest of creating a truly unified nation state, it must be brought under exactly the same law as the rest of the land. But why is it that it wasn't already under those same laws? Well, Kashmir has a totally unusual history within the history of India. What we now call the state of Kashmir, formerly it's Jammu and Kashmir, is the remains of what was once a princely state at the time that India was divided between India and Pakistan by the departing colonial British. And that state, which had a Hindu ruler, but a Muslim majority population, ended up being brought for the most part on side with India. Pakistan and India fought a war over it. 
And as a result of the end of that war, the sort of fighting lines, what's called the line of control, ended up becoming a de facto international border between India and Pakistan. Now, that line cuts through the greater Jammu and Kashmir state, but the bulk of it, and in particular the Kashmir Valley, where the ethnic Kashmiri Muslims live, stayed with India. Now, in order to get a sort of buy-in from the Kashmiri people to joining this Indian project, the early architects of India's independence felt that they needed to negotiate a special status for the people of Kashmir. They were asked to agree to join, and what they asked in exchange was a great deal of autonomy, formally at least. So this decision to rescind the rights then of Kashmir will surely open old wounds, not least with Pakistan. That's right. Pakistan was among the first to object to this move, and India was very quick to reply, this is an internal matter. It doesn't affect in any way our line of control with Pakistan, nor any other thing we have to do or say to Pakistan. So it was easy enough for India to brush off Pakistan's complaints, which so far look pro forma. And what about in the valley itself? Do you expect to see tensions there? Well, what's happening in the valley itself at the moment is incredibly hard to puzzle out for the reason that as soon as this play was afoot, the government of India brought a very, very heavy hand down on everyone living in the valley in the sense that communications were cut. But one of the things that's been happening in the valley in recent weeks is that unjustified, or at least not publicly justified, deployments of paramilitary troops have been increasing the numbers of India's military presence in the valley. Now, since that first deployment of 10,000, there was another 25,000. On Sunday night, another 8,000. All of this buildup is going to be directed at pacifying whatever violent or even nonviolent political response uh, the people of Kashmir have to this order. I wonder if this has been a bugbear of Mr. Modi's government and his party for years and a point of contention for decades. Why has Mr. Modi chosen to act now? So the easy answer to that is that Mr. Modi's government could act now. We're just a couple of months past this incredible electoral triumph that Mr. Modi won for his party in late May. And he won with himself and other prominent figures in his party saying that they intended to do something, read revoke, the special status that the state had. And then they won a massive electoral mandate. So who's going to stand in their way right now? What's more, India's opposition has never been in such disarray. It's really incredible the way that parties, even parties that fiercely oppose Mr. Modi's, most of the time have either gone quiet or even come out in support of this measure. So politically, there was nothing to stand in the way. And all of the levers of state are very much in Mr. Modi's hands, too, now. So it sounds as if there's not a whole lot to stop this. What do you think that means for India in the long term? Well, there is one hurdle left to clear, and that is the certainty that some of this somewhat complicated legislation goes before the Supreme Court. But let's suppose that Mr. Modi gets past that. To Kashmiris, the darker possibility, and not an unlikely one, is that the real reason that Mr. Modi and his ideological comrades wish to overturn one of these last few constitutional protections that Kashmir has enjoyed is so that they can take control of the question of who has a right to buy and sell land in Kashmir, who gets to live in Kashmir and call himself a Kashmiri. Now that Mr. Modi's government has its way, it seems not at all unlikely that it's going to be the beginning of a demographic flood of the valley. And that'll change the composition of the region for all time. What makes the possibility of a demographic realignment of Kashmir terrifying for the people who live there is if the Kashmiri people, a very distinctive group of people, should be overwhelmed by vast numbers of Hindu settlers coming up from mainland India, 
they'll cease to be a majority in their own homes. And moreover, if that's the way that Mr. Modi wants to govern the rest of India, it's reason for Muslims elsewhere in this country and other kinds of minorities as well to fear the prospect of a majoritarian India, an India that sees itself as foremost in ethno-nationalist construction. It may not be such a welcoming home for all Indians as it has been in the past. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason, for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. One thing I do love is being under the water. The thrill of being at the bottom of the ocean where not many people get to set foot. Treading the floor of the ocean more than 100 meters beneath the surface is the experience of only a few. The diving bell does not sit on the seabed. It sits anywhere from 7 meters to 10 meters off the seabed. And when you're jumping off the bell, it's pitch black. So you get this sense of weightlessness. If I couldn't have done diving, I would have probably become an astronaut. Deep sea diving is one of the most highly trained jobs in the world. But in recent years, many divers have struggled to get work. Like others whose jobs are largely dependent on the oil industry, they've been affected by the oil price, which between mid-2014 and early 2016 went on a spectacular fall. Since then, the price has been in a slow recovery, Though last week, trade war fears drove it down by around 8%, its biggest one-day drop since 2015. Still, divers are hoping the long-term recovery persists. Otherwise, some of them believe they may have to leave the industry for good. The oil industry, and particularly the North Sea oil industry, has recently been through one of its biggest ever bust periods. Josh Spencer writes for The Economist and has been speaking to some of those directly affected by the recent slump. So after the oil price crash, which happened kind of between 2014 and 2016, a barrel of Brent crude oil fell from a peak of about $115 to below $30. And in this environment, companies working in the North Sea dramatically slashed their costs. Uh, Last year saw the lowest amount of drilling in the North Sea since 1965. And the number of jobs supported by Britain's oil and gas industry fell by nearly 40% in three years. So there was a big loss of employment. And what kinds of jobs are we talking about being lost? So jobs right across the board were affected. But one particular example I've picked out is commercial offshore diving or deep sea diving. It's a very highly skilled and specialized job, one of the most specialized jobs in the world. But it's essential to the oil industry, which is one of the reasons I chose to focus on it. It's partly also because of its flashy image. And I kind of wanted to see whether the lifestyle and the realities of that matched up to what's been published before. So so what are these jobs like? So an offshore commercial diver in the North Sea would walk the freezing cold seabed, diving perhaps 150 meters below the surface. And the work they'd be doing down there would be kind of maintaining oil rigs and pipelines, stringing heavy nuts and bolts and doing underwater welding, among other tasks. 
which is all dangerous but very important work on behalf of massive multinational oil companies. Do you mind if I record it just so I can... Yeah, you can, you can record it. Just thanks. So I decided to meet one of these divers. Uh, his name is Sean Can. Uh, we've spoken on the phone a lot. Uh, but I actually went to visit him at his home in his town called Fort William in Western Scotland. Yeah. If you don't mind, if we could take all of this and do the interview in the garage, because I like to yeah. have a cigarette, there's heat out there. Yeah. He's an American. He's a kind of stocky former Marine who is uh, very warm and welcoming to me. And we go and sit in his garage and have a cup of tea and talk about his dangerous but fascinating job. I used to clean the bottom of sailboats. So I'd get in with a scuba bottle, go clean the hull of the boat, and I'd get paid $50, $60. And that was how I kind of made money when I got out of the Marines. And then I was like, I like this dive and I'm enjoying this. I can do this. While on the job, Sean lives in this kind of isolated, pressurized steel chamber, which is about the size of a caravan. And he sometimes spends 28 days straight in this environment. It's not a very nice job. You've got the pressure in your sinuses. There's a lot of things that you have to overcome physically. You can be crammed in with five other people. It's a very claustrophobic job. It can be very high pressure at times. They have to breathe this kind of pressurized mix of gas to correspond to the depth they'll be diving at. And the reason they do this is to avoid decompression sickness or the bends, which is a potentially deadly illness caused by leaving depth too quickly. It's often been likened to a lemonade bottle fizzing up too fast when you open it too quickly. And usually you've got probably three weeks of diving and then say a week of decompression. One famous saying that divers like to say is, you can get an astronaut back from the moon quicker than a diver from the seabed. It takes a different frame of a person to get into diving. So with all of this training and all of this danger and all of this isolation, why do they do it? So the trade-off for this extremely dangerous and hard work is that it can be spectacularly well paid. An offshore diver in a perfect year could expect to work six months and earn more than £200,000 or a quarter of a million dollars. I've heard stories of fast cars being waiting at the jetty for divers, driving off in a brand new Porsche once they finish their 28-day job. However, not every year is perfect in this industry, and that's not necessarily reflective of the figure they earn every year. And so you speak about this, this recent downturn in the industry that presumably is hitting Sean as well. Yeah, of course, it's hitting Sean. I mean, divers are hit particularly badly during downturn periods because a lot of them tend to work as freelancers, which is unlike lots of other jobs in the oil and gas industry. So when there is this shortage of work, they are left, some of them, with nothing at all. At one point recently, Sean was actually unemployed for a period of eight months. Over the last few years, we did go through a work shortage. And that all comes down to, I believe, is oil prices. Um, when the oil prices drop, there tends to not be as many contracts and work out there. When the oil prices do start coming up, you do see companies turning around and having more work. But as soon as those oil prices start creeping, there seems to be less work. So how does all of this affect Sean, both the, the sort of the periods of isolation and the, and the hard work, but also all that uncertainty? Well, it affects him a lot. And I, I also spoke to his wife, Fiona, and she sort of spoke about the emotional strain for her and Sean. Um, and when I spoke to Fiona, she was 31 weeks pregnant and Sean was preparing to head off. Sean's going away and if I go into labour early, I cannot call Sean back. 
once he's down there, you know what I mean, and then he's at that depth, it could take a minimum of three days to seven days for him to decompress. Yeah. But he can't exactly be like, no, I can't. He can't because we can't afford to. So you said that Sean um, had, had got more work. Things are looking better for him now? Yeah, things are looking up and they are looking positive for Sean and, and some other divers. I mean, the price of Brent crude oil has risen from its lows of a couple of years ago. And there are some signs that companies are putting more investment back into the industry. Sean himself definitely thinks things are on the up. And when I last spoke to him, he was actually just preparing to head off on a job. I mean, work has slowly started picking up for a lot of us over the last, I would say, last year. We have seen an increase. It hasn't been a drastic increase. I wouldn't say that we're like flooded with work, but it's in that stage where we've hit our lowest dip and we've all got our fingers crossed, hoping that it picks back up. And so do you think Sean's story is, is kind of representative of the, the industry more widely, perhaps having waited for some work, but now things seem to be on the up? It's hard to say. Uh, there is optimism among some divers, but then equally you speak to some divers who are thinking about getting out of the industry because of the recent bust. But really the thing that ties all of them is that they are dependent on the whims of this industry and the oil price. Sean even described it to me as a roller coaster life. And, you know, the people that live and work by this volatile industry do have that same absence of stability in their own lives. Josh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. In May, a doctored video of America's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appearing drunk went viral on social media. Facebook refused to take the video down, stoking the debate over how platforms deal with disinformation. These altered videos, known as deep fakes, can create a fairly convincing portrayal of something that doesn't exist. This month, social media companies indicated they're now at least considering policies to deal with them. But what exactly is a deep fake? Really, deepfake is a term. It is a catch-all term for a new and emerging class of manipulated media. Hal Hodson is The Economist's Asia technology correspondent based in Hong Kong. Which uses, for the most part, machine learning or artificial intelligence to create imagery that is depicting something which has never happened more cheaply and efficiently and quickly than we have ever been able to do in the past. And how widespread are deepfakes? Is this is is it, is it still something that requires skill? I mean, you still have to have access to artificial intelligence. Yeah, so it, it requires. I would say it requires persistence rather than skill. All of the AI slash machine learning that you need is available, to, sort of in the cloud on Amazon Web Services. It's really pretty much just Google deepfake software. Go to the go to the right page, download the software, and you're in business. Well, talk me through it a little bit. How, how does artificial intelligence help to, to create such a thing? You can really do deep fakes of almost any kind of media, whether it's audio or video. If you want to, say, make an image of Barack Obama, you know, riding a donkey, what you need to do is have lots and lots of pictures of Barack Obama and lots and lots of pictures of people riding donkeys. And you show the machine learning system loads and loads of pictures of Barack Obama. And it learns the general properties of Barack Obama. You then show lots and lots of pictures of people riding donkeys, and it does the same thing for that. It learns what a picture of a person riding a donkey is. And then when you say, 
make me a picture of Barack Obama riding a donkey, it can then do that because it understands at some fairly deep level what Barack Obama looks like and what a human riding a donkey looks like. Well, I've, I've seen some of these manipulated videos before and, uh, and in fact heard some manipulated audio before and very often there's just something that, that isn't quite right. Something suggests that it is in fact faked in some way. I mean, have we got past that point? We haven't quite got past that point except in sort of the most masterful face. And so will the technology get beyond that point? Um, it will get beyond that point. And really what it needs is, is sort of more, more data. It's just a slow process. If you look at the progress that the software has made even in the last few years, it used to be able to generate sort of postage stamp pictures of birds that looked very blurry and almost like a smudge. And now it's doing like full-blown faces of um, sort of imaginary celebrities that don't exist that really look pretty convincing. Um, but there's still that kind of that tiny little niggle where most people can look at these things and, uh, you know, accurately say which one is the faked one and which one is a real person. But it, all the indications suggest that it's getting there pretty fast. And I suppose when it gets to that point, we have an even bigger problem about, about veracity and, and misinformation and disinformation on the Internet. I think that other forms of verification will step in. We will start to, you know, need to trust the outlets more. I think we will slowly stop believing everything that we see on the internet because repeatedly it'll be shown to be, you know, not true. Um, but in the meantime, and until there's a sort of uh, blanket deniability of everything that's on the internet, there's a lot of room for this kind of thing to, to disrupt our politics, our, our societies more generally. Yeah, there is. And a lot of the concern has been focused on the potential for these technologies to be used in sort of political oppositional attacks where, you know, you make a fake video of your opponent doing something embarrassing or something that makes them unelectable, something really scandalous. Um, I My personal view is that that stuff's going to be fairly easy to, to sniff out. I suspect that where this stuff will really have an impact is at lower levels of society with like kids generating images of their friends doing embarrassing things or videos of their friends doing embarrassing things. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of a few clicks for me to go and harvest all my friends' Facebook photos, throw them into one of these deepfake things and start to make, I don't know, porn videos with their face on them. And that's the kind of thing that could be really harmful and a, 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 new, a new bullying vector. And I just suspect that the more widespread effects that aren't in the public eye will be more harmful than, uh, you know, the, the things that we worry about really intensely. Hal, thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. Good to be on. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.